0: Now, as we go into the reading and preaching of God's Word, I'm going to ask that you do something with me that I don't think I've ever done before, and that's we're going to read two passages of Scripture. Uh, Be glad that you're not standing. Uh, We're going to be reading the first 15 verses from Genesis chapter 22, and then we will go to John 3 and read to verse 21. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. And hold your place for John chapter 3. Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the, place, called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. And it is to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now turn over with me to Genesis chapter, or John chapter 3. And we'll read to verse 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, And people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, and may he add unto his blessings. Let's pray once more. Father in heaven, now as we come and study your word together, may we be blessed by it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I suspect that many of you here today know how to ride a bike. You probably know how to drive a car if you are old enough to drive. And one of the things that I, will off, that I will tell you that whenever I'm confronted with thinking about how to explain something that I should know very, very clearly, I have a very difficult time explaining it. It's almost as if that it's so common and so basic to us that people should be able to see it and understand rather immediately how to do it. When I worked in a restaurant for about two or three years in North Carolina, I had this same feeling myself. Uh, I was a waiter, and I to me it came so natural, I guess you could say, and I enjoyed doing it, but uh, I felt as though that it was very difficult to explain because I had been doing it so long and it seemed easy enough to me that anybody could do it. Well, that is something of the difficulty we have with the text before us in John 3.16. For many of you, it was probably one of the first verses that you learned to memorize as a child. Among other things, John 3.16 is a classic verse because it summarizes the Really, I think the heart of the gospel of grace in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world. You read that, and you are reminded of its teaching, of Jesus' teaching, and yet sometimes I wonder how often we think of the significance of what our Lord is actually telling us here in this word. Now, as we go into this text, since we're only dealing with one single verse, uh, verse 16 of John chapter 3, I want to give us a bird's eye view, if you will, of where we're going and how this fits within its broader context. Now, first of all, we know that throughout the entire book of John, or at least I should tell you we know that from the entire book of John, as is the case with all of John's writings, is that he writes these things to you, that you may believe in the only son of God and that you may have eternal life. He summarizes this very well in John chapter 20 verses 31 or 30 and 31. I'll read those passages to you really quickly where he, where he reads, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In John's first epistle, in John chapter 1 John chapter 5, it's a very similar thing because he's dealing in that context with believers who are uh, worried about their eternal state of salvation because there had been many in that day that John was writing to that had gone out from them had gone out from the communion of the fellowship of the saints. And so he writes that letter as he writes this gospel that you may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the climax of our Lord's discourse in the upper room is found in John chapter 17 where he says, And I pray that they know you, that in this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ whom he Has sent. It's riddled throughout the entire gospel. So that you may know that this gospel is to teach you of how Jesus Christ came into the world, the things that he said, did, and believed, that you may believe in him and have eternal life. And in John chapter 3, in this more immediate context, he's talking to one of the Jewish rulers, Nicodemus, who at great peril to himself comes, a great reputation of himself rather, to inquire of Jesus something about his teachings, about what is the significance of it all. And Jesus very clearly says that you can only know what I'm telling you or believe it if you've been born again. Now, Nicodemus, as I think sometimes I can speak of myself, can be very dense-headed. And says, well, how in the world can that be? And Jesus answers very clearly that, you know, you you can't really understand this because what I'm talking about is regeneration, being reborn by the Spirit. You can only believe if you have been born again by the Spirit working within you. And as we come to John 3.16... He answers that motivating question of why you believe at all. Why the Spirit came to renew you, to make you alive, to give you the gift of faith that you may take hold of Christ, receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. And that is because of the love of God. You need to know that the reason that you believe at all is because of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And that is what Jesus is teaching us here today. You believe because of the love of God for you. You believe because of the love of God for you. And we'll see that in two ways. We'll see first of all in the first half of the verse the demonstration of God's love for you. And then second we will see the result of God's love for you. The demonstration And the result. Now, again, he says, For God so loved the world. I wish that there were words that could describe uh, the love of God. It's been described by some theologians as perhaps the highest uh, revelation of God's attributes the love of God. There is no other attribute like holiness that's repeated three times in three ways to sort of give you the emphasis of the, of the holiness of God. You know, you see in Isaiah chapter six, for example, where the angels are ascending and descending saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the thing about that, that attribute of God is is that it does encapsulate the very purity of His character. He cannot be around sin. He hates sin. In fact, He punished uh, the innocent lambs in the Old Testament by the shedding of their own blood, that by the shedding of the blood of lambs, sin may be atoned for, because God and His holy character cannot be around it. You and I are as guilty of our sin as we were the day that we were born. And yet, God and His infinite love does not leave you in that sin, but rather He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Now, this word here for for love is one of the more common words that if I told you what the word was agape, you would instantly know that it is one of six different uh, words that the New Testament or rather the Greek languages uses for love it's usually attributed to God as it relates to God and man or man to God and as is presented here in this text, the love of God as it is 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 in a form that is just simply undefined. It harkens back to the fact that God loved us from before the foundation of the world. It is a past reality. It is a present reality. And if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will most certainly be a future reality as well. Because as Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 1, he predestined us in love. He, in love, he conformed us to the image of his son. It is that while we were yet sinners that God that Christ died for us. We believe primarily because God first loved us. You believe because God first loved you. While you were his enemies, Christ died for you. While you were his enemies, Christ died for you. And friends, that really gets to you the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? Now you can talk about any day of what the gospel is. That Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that's true. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for my sin that I may have eternal life. That is true too. But friends, the heart of the gospel is such that you cannot believe unless the Lord first loved you. You will not come to him unless he, out of his eternal love and grace to you, does not first send his son into the world to die for you, that his spirit might regenerate you, that he may encourage you in walking in the newness of life. And friends, I just have to ask you, do you know the love of God today? Do you know the love of God today? There is a tendency I've seen in a lot of friends and co-workers who do not know of the love of God. (coughs) When you consider that it's your heavenly father that loves you. And he does. For many people in the world, they don't know what love is. It's never been demonstrated for them. Psychological studies that I'd read often find that if there's a boy or girl that is being reared and they are asked, do you know that your father loves you? They would say, some have said no. And for people that find it difficult to know of their father's love for them, find it infinitely more difficult to know that God Almighty loves them. Because it's one thing, it's, On the one hand, it's one thing to say, I love you. But it's a completely different thing to demonstrate that love. Many people have a hard time articulating their love for a significant other, a spouse, a child. But their actions do speak louder than their words because they give up so much for them. And the Lord of glory demonstrates his love to you in sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And there's no greater act of love that the Father could do except demonstrate that. It is an essential attribute of God that he love even those who are most unlovable. And friends, you were one of those at one point, unlovable, because of the sin in your heart that as our confession of sin said today, you sin and thought, word, and deed. And if it were not for the love of God working to regenerate you and renew you, you would not believe. Now, Jesus extends this love to the whole world. Look at the other end of that clause. For God so loved the world. Now, I want to, now I'll explain this first. You have to imagine how shocking that might have been to Nicodemus. God's love, his covenant love that he set upon the people of Israel from the beginning in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, where he continues to unpack that love by giving them a sign of his promise. Uh, that particular covenant love has been set upon the Jews and the Jews only for For many of them from the beginning of the world until now. So the idea for Nicodemus that the world, that God could even love the world was a fantastic idea, principally Because God's covenant love had not been set upon them before. And the idea here presented for the world as it's being described is this. That it's the world in its guilty state. It's the world insofar as it is outside the covenant promises of God. God first loved you. He first loved you while you were his enemies. And that is what is so difficult for Someone like Nicodemus to get his head around. That God could love sinners. That God could love sinners. But we also know, throughout the rest of the Bible, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, when, God, when we do say that God loves the world, we're not talking about the world in the sense that God is going to save everybody, uh, every single individual. I do believe that, that Christ's sacrifice could save everybody in the world. But what he's getting to is the universal scope of God's love and salvation through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is freely offered to the world. That anybody in the world who are God's people, who do not know him, who are wayward, who have gone away from the flock and he, the good shepherd, is calling them again by his voice, will come to him. They will come back. They'll come to him for the first time. And he enters into this world through his Son to demonstrate that love in a way that the Gentiles in the Old and New Testament never thought they could. But in fact, really throughout the entirety of the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, for example, uh, which some would call the gospel of the Old Testament, is that God's whole plan and purpose is to bring the Gentiles in. You and me, we're Gentiles because we're not of Jewish birth. God's whole plan is to be a blessing through Abraham through his seed, and Jesus Christ is that seed. He's the one who came into the world to die that to make that sacrifice that uh, Abraham's son Isaac was not going to do. Now, in that passage in Genesis chapter twenty-two, we see very clearly. That, the, that Abraham sent his son not knowing whether or not he would have to actually give up his son, but he was resolved with two things. That one way or the other, if he had to slay his son, God would raise him, or that God would provide the sacrifice. And we know that he did provide the sacrifice. Friends, God provides his own son as a sacrifice so that you would not be having to bear the wrath of God. He loves the world in this way. And that should change how we relate one to another as brothers and sisters in Christ and to those in the watching world. We cannot content ourselves to say that the world is going to be the world and I just want nothing of it. Now that it is true at one level that the world will be the world. If they're going to blaspheme God's name, if they are going to break his holy law, that is what they are going to do. But the most loving thing that you or I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can do is to at least confront them with this reality. That yes, you are a sinner. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son. The act of God's love then is in the fact that he gave. It's not that he merely just sent him as a messenger or as a prophet, but he willingly gave him. Now friends, I I know that at Christmas time you're ones to give gifts. I I like getting gifts, and I like giving them from time to time as well, because it's a joyous time. I love Christmas. It's a Fantastic time of year where family and friends get together and exchange gifts. And what is the motivating factor then for why you give gifts in the first place? It's because you love the one who's getting the gift. And the reality is that in more off more cases, often than not, the ones who are receiving gifts will still love the gift giver, even if the gift itself is very good. I remember when I got my first bike, I loved my bike till it was stolen. Um, then I couldn't really love it anymore. Um, but I didn't so much love the gift itself because it was something that I'd never had before. Rather, it was something that my parents had freely given me out of their love for me. And friends, that is what God the Father does through Jesus Christ, His Son. He doesn't just give Him like, ah, here you go. He freely gives Him. He models for us very perfectly what Abraham was trying to do in freely giving his Son. Because he knew one of two things, as I said. Either God would raise him from the dead, or He would provide a sacrifice. And he believed God would do that. And God indeed did do that. And in the same way, how much more then do you see? That God heightens the standard by giving the his eternal Son, his Not just his only son, his only begotten son, the one who was born from all worlds, who existed in the past, who existed before creation began, who is begotten of God, is co-eternal with God. He is not made, he's not a creation, but he is very God of very God and very man of very man, truly God and truly man enters into this world, not considering equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, poured himself out by being obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. His body was broken for you. His body was bruised for you. His blood was shed for you. And friends, you will not understand the gospel rightly unless you first understand that it was, that it pleased the Father to crush him. It pleased the Father to crush him for your sake because he loves you and that he is not willing that any should perish but that you should come to repentance. Unless you think that the Lord Jesus Christ himself protested, Paul teaches us in Galatians that this same love is the same love that Christ has for you. The good shepherd puts himself out for you. Is crushed for you. Is afflicted for you underwent hell itself for you. That is the act of God's love. But second, we need to see the result of God's love. What we see in the second half of the verse, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, The idea of perishing here is very similar to is exactly what you would think it would be, and that's an eternal punishment of hell, and that's a very real reality. It's a place described in the Book of Revelation, uh, chapter twenty-one, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that there outside the gates of heaven there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a scare tactic; it's a reality. You and I stand condemned already. And this is the judgment as John says at the end of his chapter. That you stand condemned already. And that even though the light has come into the world, the light being Jesus Christ, there are many in the world who prefer the darkness to the light. Who prefer sin to life. Who, pre- who prefer, prefer sin to obedience. Who prefer darkness to light. Who prefer punishment to uh, uh, freedom. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, is there anyone here foolish enough today to want the punishment of injustice of God? No. I would hope that you wouldn't. Because... In the perishing of the Son on the cross, He went through the hell that you and I had to go through. The perishing that He went through is the perishing that, if you are in sin today, if you are outside of the fold of God, if you are outside of the family of God, that reality waits for you. It stands on you already. That's not a scare tactic. That is reality. And for anybody that that would would say... Would cause any sort of joy. I I would hate for it too. The idea that we could rejoice in the death of the wicked is something that even the Father does not do. It's been freely given. We've been freely loved, so that we would not, should not have to perish. Now, to unpack the idea a bit, if you remember from a sermon that I gave a few weeks ago from Philippians, where we talked about. Uh, heaven, in that we said what something of what heaven was and what it wasn't. Many people have their ideas. Well, it's the same thing with hell. I mean, if you think about it, you probably are, okay. I'll give you this one because it, it just immediately came to me from Tom and Jerry, where you see the the dot where you see Tom go. You know, dies and he's going up into. Cat heaven, as it were, and they say you can't come in unless you make amends with this mouse. And then you see the uh, the bulldog with the horns, the tail, and the uh, trident. He's red. That that's something of the image that most people have as far as who the devil is like, and the place where he's at, of what hell is like. It's a fiery place. It's a torturous place. Now it is torturous. It is fiery, but it's not from the devil himself. It's from God. believe that God is always present. Is he present in hell? Yes he is. But the presence of God in hell is the wrath of God that Christ bore on the tree. Think about it. Go back to your gospel narratives and think about it. What happened in Passion Week? Jesus was betrayed by a friend. His disciples deserted him. His family had all but practically disowned him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me, he is highlighting the wrath of God. He's highlighting that he wished not to be separated From the triune God, from the persons of the Trinity, that fellowship that he's had for all eternity, he's asking, Lord, do not turn your back on me. And what do we see on the cross? That Jesus is up there and there's darkness for three three hours. Complete darkness, midday. What's the significance of that? Jesus in that moment was the loneliest man in the face of the earth. He was not just so much abandoned by his friends and his family. But his communion with the triune God, Father and Spirit, was completely cut off. Such that you can say that physically, physically, Cosmically, Jesus was completely alone to bear the wrath of God. The punishment of sins, past, present, and future. I mean, you think about it, there are seven billion people on the world today. Untold number of souls from the past. And God only knows how many will be born in the future. And that by Jesus' dying breath, he gave you life. That's the perishing that awaits in hell, The wrath of God. And it's a real reality. But Jesus came into the world so that you would not know that perishing, but that you would have eternal life. Now again, we talked about one time and I'll do it again today about what eternal life is like what's heaven like I don't know Bible doesn't speak much to it but as opposed to hell something that he sent his son into the world that you should not have he sends his son into the world that the communion and union with God and Christ that you had in the garden would have had had Adam and Eve obeyed. You may have again. And you may have hope for it. it is secured for you today by the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ. And it is looking forward to that day. We're at death's dark veil. And it is only a veil. That it's like going through that door over there. Of passing from death to life. And you enter into the presence of our blessed Savior. And he says, welcome home, my good and faithful servant, where you know of his words, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, come, and I will give you rest. Rest from what? Rest from the burden of sin. Rest from its consequences. Rest from the aches and the pains, the death, the senseless crime. that world will be no more in heaven, in eternal life. Such that the world that you know, and that's what's so inconceivable about it. It's taking the world that you know and making it no more. But it's to the praise of His glorious grace. In John chapter 17, we again see that the reason that we may have eternal life is Not merely for your sake. Yes, he loves you. But God receives glory from every dead sinner made alive again. He receives glory by you repenting of your sins and believing on Jesus Christ anew afresh today. And he offers that to you. This passage is the reason why I believe in the free offer of the gospel. Again, to go back to the gift analogy, you give gifts to those who you love. And that gift is offered as well to you today. That for God loved the world. That he sent his son, his only son, his only begotten son. That if you should believe, you will not perish but you'll have everlasting life. I can't think of another sermon as we go into uh, Holy Week, as we consider the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I can't think of a better thing than to be reminded that the reason God sent, gave His Son is because of the love that He has for you. And it's a love untold. Parents, you tell your children all the time, don't you? That I love you beyond words, what words can tell. And if you just had a child, you love that child more than any than words can express. Even in that moment, it's like when you hold a child, moms, dads, you can't experience this. Uh, when you hold, when the mom gives is able to hold her child for the first time, there's there's a bonding that's going on there, isn't it? Of mother and son, or mother and daughter an intimate precious moment and that is something of the something of the love of God for you for a dead sinner made alive again born again as he welcomes you into his arms his warm embrace and you get to know that the entirety of your life here and that you may know it For all eternity. As we consider then the fact that the only reason that you believe is because of God's love for you, He demonstrates it and He results it. I want to leave you with this psalm, Psalm 103, as tight set to music for singing. I'm not going to sing it. Um, But I do want to read it to you. All the same, because I do believe that it summarizes very well what we've considered today. Come, my soul, and bless the Lord. All within me bless his name. Come, my soul, and bless the Lord, and forget not all his grace. All your sins the Lord forgives, all your sickness he heals. He redeems you from the pit. His compassion he reveals. For the Lord is slow to wrath, full of mercy, full of grace. He abounds in steadfast love, will not chide for endless days. God will not retain his wrath. He will not repay our sins. He will never deal with us as our wickedness demands. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you do not deal with us as our wickedness demands, but that we are reminded of your love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, that Christ loved us to to die for us, that the Spirit loves us to seal us, and that as we go into this week, As we go throughout this day, we may be reminded that the heart of the gospel is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and that you first loved us. I pray that you will be with us today, throughout the day, on your day, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.